If you could stand, please, the scripture will be on the screen behind us. Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so today we begin. I gotta turn myself on. Today we begin the book of Jonah. I am excited. Um, the message today is entitled Taking God's Way or the Highway. Uh, now, when I mention the name of Jonah, what comes to mind? A fish, a whale, right? A big fish, right? Uh, maybe a storm, possibly. Possibly a man covered in seaweed walking through a beautiful city and, and speaking judgment to everyone that'll listen, right? Um, more often than not, the picture that comes to mind is a man getting thrown into the sea, like we have on our little picture, being swallowed by a giant fish. We learn about it in Sunday school. Uh, I'm surprised there are no songs that are written about Jonah. It's as popular as it is. I can't think of any that are, that are written about it. But it's a controversial story, right? Because, I mean, who could really survive in the belly of a fish for three days? How would he breathe, Right? Wouldn't the pressure of being in the deep water have him uh, have caused him to uh, experience the bends, right? Or, or wouldn't he have at least passed out? Uh, I mean, who could really write a poem while stuck in the belly of a big fish, right? I'd be interested to know, you don't have to raise your hands, but think about it. How many of you have actually read the book of Jonah from start to finish? Maybe in one sitting. It's not very long. Uh, and then how many of you have just heard about the story of Jonah from like a Sunday school teacher or from Veggie Tales or for something like that, right? <laughs> if you have read it from start to finish, have you ever considered the question, what is this story really about? What was the author's purpose for writing this story? Did the author just want to tell an amusing story about a guy who ran from God? Or was the author trying to preserve an incredibly uh, and most unbelievable historical account of a man who survived being swallowed by a fish? Are we supposed to learn something like God can protect us, even in the belly of the sea creature? Or maybe like, you know, if we don't obey God, we're going to get swallowed by a fish. You know, like what what is he trying to teach us? Right. And here's the challenge of preaching through uh, a very familiar story like this is many people think they know what it's all about. God putting Jonah in a fish. But I'm here to tell you the story is not about the fish, like at all. Uh, the fish is only mentioned three times, and one of those times is just to tell us the location from which uh, Jonah cries out to God. And so if that is not what the book is about, then what is it about? While the purpose of any book in the Bible is to reveal God's character and God's will for mankind, God's will for us. Uh, Bible prophecy, biblical narrative, the stories of Jesus, the letters of Paul, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, all of it is written to teach us about God's purposes for mankind and how those purposes were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And with that understanding, the book of Jonah takes on a greater significance than it may seem on the surface. 
Because truly the book of Jonah is an incredibly unique book. It's unlike any other book in the Bible. It is full of intrigue and suspense and humor and satire and poetry and dialogue. All in one little one-page letter, right? One-page book. It's an incredible piece of literature. And what makes uh, the book of Jonah such a controversial book is it's difficult to pin it down. Like, what, what is it, right? Um, you see, the Jews have it listed among the books of the prophets, which is interesting because the book is really not anything like any of the other traditional prophetic books. Prophets were simply people who received a message from the Lord and then they brought it to the people. They were messengers. And most of the prophetic books, like Malachi or Ezekiel or Habakkuk or whatever, were written oracles or messages given to the prophet by God, where he said, thus saith the Lord, and then they would write that down and they would give it off to the people. I want you to turn over a page to, uh, well, actually, if you can't find the book of Jonah, I encourage you to go to the front, because you'll, if you're paging through your Bible, you're going to miss it. It's very, very short. You go to the front, find the table of contents, find the page. But if you, if you found Jonah, you flip one page over, you'll see the book of Micah. And the book of Micah starts out very much like the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the son of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, and it goes on. And then you see what the Lord said to Micah, right? Very similar to what Jonah says. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, but then it goes very, very different. Almost identical, but not quite at all. We find that the book is not about the prophecy that God gives Jonah so much. It's about the prophet himself. And the majority of God's prophetic declarations were spoken uh, to the nation of Israel, most often, they were warnings of judgments and consequences for their sin. It's like doom and gloom. Sometimes the prophecies were exciting and comforting words from God about a perfect future day with him someday. There are also instances of God speaking uh, prophecies of judgment to other nations because of their sin. Uh, but every other prophet who spoke against other nations received the word of the Lord and proclaimed it in the comfort of their own home country of Israel. They were not asked to leave Israel and go to another place to preach against it. Jonah was the only prophet that is called by God to leave Israel, go to a foreign nation, speak against it on their home turf. Right? So again, the, cook, the book is very, very different. It doesn't follow the standard pattern of any other prophetic book. And then there's the different theories about what genre is the book of Jonah. And you go to the Waksha Library, and they have books classified by all their different Genres, right? Like sci-fi and fantasy or poetry or cooking, history, children's books, all of those. And they classify those books in certain places, right? The type of genre that a book is actually makes it different in how you interpret the book, right? If the genre of a book is history and the purpose of the author was to accurately record a particular event, then you interpret that book in that way. But if the author was writing a piece of fiction, then you would interpret the body of information that you read in a different way. If you pick up a Cooking for Dummies book, you know that you're not going to find anything in there about foreign policy. You know because of the genre of the book. All that to say, determining the genre is important for understanding the overall meaning, interpretation, and application of a book. So what kind of genre is Jonah? There are two main theories. Many consider Jonah to be uh, the recording of a historical account of the prophet Jonah. And thus the author, his main intent was to preserve a historically accurate depiction of this incredible and miraculous event. Now others would classify it as a parable, 
based on historical narrative. In other words, the events of the story are true, they really happen, but the author tells the story in the way of a parable because the main purpose is to teach us something. And this book, the purpose is to teach us a lesson about the truth, a truth about God and also exposing the truth about the, hum, the condition of the human heart. And the book of Jonah does this in a very, very unique way. In fact, many of the scholars and commentators who would classify it as a parable propose that the book of Jonah is written as a satire. Now, who here has read the little articles by the Babylon Bee? Anyone? Okay, we have a few out there. Yes. Uh, pretty funny, right? They're very satirical. They are a brilliant example of what satire is. Um, satire is the use of humor and irony, exaggeration, and ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity, their vices, their particular, uh, particularly in a context of contemporary politics or other social issues. That's Oxford's definition of satire. So satire takes real-life people, puts them in situations that are ridiculous or over-the-top, and it, it hooks you in with humor and exaggeration and irony. And the authors are making fun of people and of culture and of you, actually. And what makes it so powerful is that your defenses are down because you are laughing at somebody until you realize that you're kind of the brunt of the joke because it's, it's, a, it's a critique on culture and on you. So in the case of Jonah, the author uh, wrote about a true individual recording the historical events, but using humor and irony, exaggeration, and ridicule to do so. Now, some of you may think, uh, that doesn't sound like something that God would do and put in his holy word, right? Put satire in his holy word. But remember who created language and humor and irony? God did. And who knows better than anyone else how to use those things in a way that will actually speak to our hearts? God does. So could he use this type of writing style to teach us something very unique about himself and about ourselves? Most certainly. Because the story does have humor in it. A fish vomiting up a man on shore to most kids is very funny, right? And, and, and a single worm eating Jonah's entire plant in one day, there's a bit of funniness to that. The author also used exaggeration. For example, everything in the book is huge or great. The word great is used about a dozen times in this very, very short book. And it is used to describe everything that Jonah comes up against in his, in his, uh, his fleeing from God. First of all, the, the Nineveh was a great city, it says in there. The city of Nineveh was big, it was great, but in chapter 3, it says that it would take three days to walk through the city. It would, that would have to be a massive city. Even at a reasonable rate of 15 miles a day, which most people can do, a city would have to be no less than 45 miles in diameter. Right? But at the height of its power, Nineveh was only three miles in diameter. And so, though the city was big, the author is using exaggeration to paint a picture of the circumstances that Jonah found himself in. And there are other greats in the book. God sent a great wind. God, or the sea mariners, were greatly afraid. And the tempest was great. And men on the boat were greatly afraid of the Lord. And God sent a great big fish. And then Jonah's portrayed as being a bit crazy in chapter 4 because he's greatly displeased. And in the very next moment, he's greatly glad and, and pleased. And so he's up and down and, and there's all of this stuff going on. So the language is way over the top in this book. Everything is huge from the emotions of Jonah to the storm at the sea, to the size of the city, to the fear of the Lord. And the author wants to kind of disarm you with his writing so he can convict you with his message. And so there is also incredible irony in the book of Jonah. The most noticeable of the irony is how Jonah, the prophet of God, 
the one who's supposed to respond to God properly, right? He's the one with the hardest heart and the only one in the book who doesn't listen to God or respond to him appropriately or to his mercy appropriately. All the other actors in the book, from the wind to the sailors, from the fish to the king of Nineveh, from the plant to the worm, even the cattle, all of them listen to the voice of the Lord and respond properly to his mercy. Even the cattle fast and repent and are covered in sackcloth. If you read it, it's pretty interesting. So it's a fun story. It's exciting. It's furious, uh, funny. It's serious. It's fast-paced. It's introspective. But it is not a children's story. And it's not about a fish. So what it is about is the abounding love of God. And so let's start by turning to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll start reading there. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying... Now I want to stop there. Jonah's name means dove. Now when you think of a dove, you think, what does it symbolize, right? It's purity, innocence, right? So Jonah, dove is the son of Amittai. And now this is ironic, and it should make you smile. Amittai's name means faithfulness or truth. So here's how it goes. Now the word of the Lord came to dove or innocence, the son of faithfulness. And right there, right out of the gate, you find that Jonah is anything but a dove, and he's anything but faithful. In fact, every other actor in the book is more faithful than dove, son of faithfulness. This is a satire. Ironically, the person you think is going to be the hero of the story, Jonah, turns out to be the villain. And the evil villains, actually, the Ninevites, they turn out to be the good guys because they respond to God properly. And it's interesting. Overall, there is very little that we know about Jonah other than this book and a short passage in 2 Kings and then Jesus mentioning him in the book of Matthew. Uh, we, uh, we don't know much else about Jonah. But what little backstory we do have of Jonah uh, is important for us to understand. So we're going to turn there. Jonah, um, who is supposed to be the hero of the story, had what I consider to be a controversial ministry. Jonah was a prophet. He lived during the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel, which was during the time of the Assyrian Empire. And if you turn to 2 Kings, I'll read it. You don't have to. But 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 to 26, gives us a little bit of insight. 2 Kings 14 says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. So he, Jeroboam II, restored the border of Israel from Named Libo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. So Jonah was a prophet of Israel. His father's name was Amittai. God spoke to Jonah, and Jonah in turn took God's message and delivered it to this king. In other words, Jonah and God had a relationship. But why do I think that Jonah had a, was a controversial figure? Well, King Jeroboam II was not a good guy. He was named after Jeroboam I, who was notoriously evil. He rebelled against God, set up his temple, put golden calves in the temple, and, and caused people to worship them. 
He used his power and he used his position to draw the hearts of people away from God and to idols. So Jeroboam II was not only named after this first Jeroboam, but he followed in his footsteps. He was evil. And so there's this ungodly evil king who rebelled against God and was evil in all his ways. And along comes Jonah and he delivers a favorable message from the Lord. It's a message that their borders would increase under the rule of Jeroboam II. And this is the type of message everyone wants to hear, right? Prosperity for the nation of Israel. It meant that Israel was winning some battles and enjoying some peace and prosperity. And it is the type of message everyone wants to declare to the king. Those type of prophecies resulted in the king's favor. I'm sure Jonah was doing pretty well. In favor with the king, compensated accordingly. He was living the good life and he had no desire or reason to change. But you see, Jonah had delivered this message of goodwill to an evil king. Not quite what you'd expect, because not all the other prophets were delivering a very different message. The rest of the prophets were telling the kings how bad they were, how they needed to turn to the Lord, and that God was going to judge them if they didn't. And I would surmise that Jonah's message didn't sit well with the prophets or the God-fearing people. And Jonah wasn't your average run-of-the-mill prophet. He was comfortable. He had received a favorable prophecy to his own people. He liked the message he was called to deliver. He liked the people to whom he was to deliver them to. Things were good. And then comes Jonah chapter 1. And God approaches Jonah sometime later. And here's what God commands Jonah to do. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah 1 verse 2. But Jonah rose... uh, Sorry. Arise, God said, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So by God's order, Jonah is supposed to get up and go to another ungodly and evil king. But instead of giving a favorable message from the Lord, he was to tell the ungodly king that God was going to destroy him and his empire. So go proclaim an unfavorable prophecy to an unfavorable people, in an unfavorable way. A little more historical context will be helpful here. As I mentioned, Jonah lived in the reign of Jeroboam II, which was during the 8th century. And during that century, the Assyrian Empire was a formidable foe. It was the empire during that time, a powerful conquering war machine. The Assyrians ruled Mesopotamia by conquering and pillaging just nation after nation after nation. They were a brutal people. They were known for inventing new torture techniques they would treat their captives in the most inhumane ways imaginable. They would, if they were conquering a city, they would impale their captives on poles outside of the city so that everyone inside could see and be frightened into surrendering. They would skin alive the leaders of the city so they would take, uh, they would take captive and then have everyone watch them as they did it in order to instill fear in their captives. They would crucify innocent people. They would burn them at the stake. And then here's the thing. After they were dead, the Assyrians would take their bodies and body parts of their victims and they would decorate their city and their temples with it. They were evil. They were arrogant. They were violent and murderous and promiscuous idolaters. They were horrible, horrible people. And Nahum, the prophet of Israel, to whom God gave a message also for Nineveh, And then he tired of Nahum's prophecy in his book under his name is an oracle against the city. And I want you to, uh, it's a great city, uh, the wicked city of Assyria. And I want you to hear what Nahum from the Lord's mouth says about Assyria. And this is from Nahum chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city. 
all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the dead bodies, all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with their whorings and people with her charms. Now that does not sound like a good city to me. Heaps of bodies, corpses upon corpses, people tripping over them. This is how God describes the city of Nineveh. So you see, this barbaric nation wanted nothing more than to take over the entire world, which included little old Israel. The Assyrians were the ones who later on literally wiped the ten tribes of Israel off the planet. They had no regard for life. They were very, very evil. And rightfully so, Israel hated Assyria. They were constantly being attacked. People were constantly being killed. The stress of living under the threat of invasion was always present. But it wasn't just the invasion that concerned people. It was what would happen to them if they were taken captive. Now, it's not too difficult for us to imagine this scenario, right? Like Israel in that time, we live in a semi-peaceful country. We grew up under Judeo-Christian values. We are prosperous. We live in freedom. We look at the other nations uh, with large armies led by communist dictators, ruthless psychopaths, and we consider them the enemy. We don't want them to attack us. We would never want to live under their tyrannical rule and their ruthless empire. It sounds deplorable to us. It is something we could not imagine doing. We'd, we'd probably rather die defending our freedom and our family than live under the rule of a, and reign of a barbaric communist dictator. Right? And this is how the Israelites felt towards Assyria. Disgust and hatred. They wanted their enemies dead. The world will be better without their evil presence destroying so many innocent lives. And so when God came to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh and preach against it, it's almost an unthinkable task. One commentator remarked, it would be like sending a lone Jew during World War II into the heart of Nazi Berlin to preach against the atrocities of the Nazi regime. It would be like Frodo Baggins going into Mount Mordor, right? Or it'd be like one of us walking into the streets of Moscow today and preaching against it. Who in their right mind would do that? And then if Jonah wasn't skinned and hung up to dry after opening his mouth in the middle of this barbaric city, and if they listened to his message, and if they repented, then what? Would God relent of the disaster and spare them in his mercy? That's inconceivable. And how would all of those Israelites then feel if they knew that you were the prophet who delivered the message of warning to evil Nineveh, which resulted in their salvation from the judgment of God that they rightly deserved? You see how convicting this book is going to be? And so what did Jonah do? Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah rose, you're reading it, you're like, okay. If you're reading it for the first time, you're like, oh, Jonah's getting up, he's obeying God. God said, arise and go. So he gets up and he goes, but then, no, he flees. 
And this is unexpected. Not what you'd think a prophet would do. And Jonah books it out of town to find a boat to Tarshish in order to flee from the presence of the Lord. And it says that Jonah ran down to Joppa, which is in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. Now there's a map here. Tarshish is as far away as you could possibly go. Right? It's, it's at the end of the known world at that time. Way over there on the tip of Spain. The last stop before the huge Atlantic Ocean in the unknown. It's like this guy is crazy. He's willing to go to the ends of the earth rather than to go where God told him to go. Rather than go and pronounce judgment upon his enemies. It says that he paid the fare. He bought the whole ship. Jonah spared no expense. Money was not an obstacle to his exit strategy. He purchased the fare to take him 1,500 miles away to the very ends of the known world. So he went down to Joppa, and then it says he went down into the ship. And the author is subtly describing a life of sin, a life of running from God. Jonah is beginning a descent into a life of rebellion that ultimately takes him further than he ever intended. It says that Jonah went down to Joppa, verse 3. He went down into the ship, verse 3. He went down into the bowels of the ship, we'll see next week in verse 5, to go to sleep. And then, at the, and then in chapter 2, we're going to find that he went down to the very roots of the mountains, as low as he could go. He went as far down as he could go in his sin and rebellion. And Jonah wanted to get as far away as he could from the presence of God, but that's not possible. And though sin took him further than he intended to go, to the very bottom, as low as he could go, to the gutter as we call it, he could not remove himself from God's presence. God still pursued him. You know, Jonah was a prophet. He knew he could not run from God. He was familiar with the Old Testament and the Psalms. I want you to listen to Psalm 139, and Jonah would have known this Psalm. 139, where can I go from your spirit? Or, if, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, way over in Tarshish, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. Jonah knew better. So then why was he doing this? Why? Was he simply afraid of being tortured by the Ninevites? I mean, he could have simply disobeyed God and still stayed in the country of Israel under the protection of his friend, that ruthless other king of Israel, right? And pretend to worship God in his temple. Why flee? Why attempt to go as far away from the Lord as possible? Another incredible feature of this book is that the author doesn't give us Jonah's reason until the end of the book. He does give it to us, but he doesn't give it to us until the end. He wants us to contemplate what's motivating Jonah as we read this story and the author waits until the end to reveal Jonah's reason. It's a fascinating reason. It's an ironic reason. It's a revealing reason. It's a very convicting reason. Turn to Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. You might not have to turn here. You might just be able to look across the page like me. Jonah 4, verse 2. This is after he's gone through Nineveh and stuff. He's sitting on the hill. And, and Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
Jonah's reason in modern lingo, I knew you were a gracious and merciful God and that there was a chance that you would not bring judgment down upon Nineveh. So I ran. You see, Jonah struggled to reconcile the mercy and judgment of God. The very thing that I would imagine Jonah loved most about God was the very thing that he despised. God's mercy and his love. Remember our study of the suffering servant of the Lord? We learned that God's judgment and justice is gentle and his mercy can seem very severe. And this is, and this is the aspect of God that Jonah didn't like. He just couldn't deal with the fact that God could be merciful to undeserving sinners, his enemies. So instead of dealing with it, he ran. He didn't care what happened to himself. He, he, if he died while he was running, so be it. Better than watching his brutal, evil enemies be spared the judgment that he felt they so rightly deserved. Oof, right? I want you to think back to February when we finished the book of Acts. We ended the series with a question. Why did Luke end his written account of the early church in the way that he did? It was kind of abrupt, if you remember. Um, and his abrupt ending made us want to know more. It was a cliffhanger. Like, like what's the rest of the story? What happened to Paul? Did, did the gospel continue? And, and who did God use next, right? And we mentioned that Luke, the author, wanted us to ask those questions. He intended the book of Acts uh, in that way, to end that way, to challenge us to consider how we will continue the story of the apostles and the account of the acts of the Holy Spirit. Luke was inviting us to get involved with his cliffhanger ending. Will we obey the great commission of Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Will you obey Jesus by proclaiming the message in spite of opposition and difficulty and difference and, and disbelief? Or will you not do that? Will you choose to disobey Jesus' command? And that's that's the, the question he leaves you at the end of Acts. And it's the same way with this incredible book of Jonah. We're going to find that Jonah's got a cliffhanger ending as well. But his ending packs a powerful punch. Actually, the whole story packs a powerful punch. But the author lures you into the story with his powerful writing techniques, gets you laughing at how crazy this man Jonah is, how he's running from God, and then gets swallowed by a fish and vomited up on a shore. And he walks to Nineveh preaching the shortest message used by any prophet. And yet it was successful. Everything else in the story is great, but his message is not. It's horrible, right? Uh, it was the shortest message of any prophet. It was not even complete, but everybody repents. Even the cows repent. And it's an insane story. And then you get to the end of it and you realize, wow, Jonah, the supposed hero of the story, is not happy. He's a miserable and angry individual. And you read it and you can kind of understand why when you think of who Assyria is. And, and because Jonah's point kind of hits home, right? And then it dawns on you. Oh my, the author's talking about me. He's actually talking to me. He's describing me and my heart, my sinful heart. And you see, in this true life parable, Jonah represents the people of God. That is, Jonah represents those who are called by God. Jonah was called, and so are we. He represents those who have a relationship with God. Jonah had a relationship with God. So do we. He represents those who are blessed to be part of his chosen people. He had that, and we do too. 
Those who have received the blessings of God's promises and salvation and provision and protection. All that was true of Jonah and all that is true of us. So Jonah represents us, the church, you, the individual. You who are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. The author painfully reveals a sin that can infect the heart of God's people. A sin that can sneak in when we least expect it. It's a sinful heart that even though you and I have received every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, only by the grace of God, not of works, nothing we did to merit it. It's a heart of sin that thinks that we are the only ones that should be able to enjoy those blessings. We deserve it more than the next guy. It's a selfish, self-centered heart. A heart that says we are chosen, they are not. God's mercy is for us, but it most certainly should not be for them. They are too evil. Do you know what they did to me? What they did to our town, to our nation? They are evil, brutal, murderous, idolatrous, disgusting sinners who don't care about anything or anybody. They skin people while they're alive. They besiege innocent city, ravaging women and children. They knowingly infect people with untreatable diseases. They are agents of mass genocide. Their religions and their vows to their gods and spirits are sinister. They want to control the population of the world. Their desires of one world government, a one currency, one language, one culture. They deserve to die. You thought I was talking about modern day, don't you? I wasn't. I was talking about Assyria. But then again, there's nothing new under the sun. We live in the same context as they did, as Jonah did. And God's word is incredibly relevant for us today. We deal with the same sinful strategies of the world, the same evil rulers that they did back then. And yet God says, I created those people. Shouldn't I have the right to pity and show mercy upon even them if they repent? So go tell them about my judgment and my love, my justice and my mercy. Perhaps they will turn to me and I can save them too. You see, God was inviting Jonah into an incredible, miraculous adventure of obedience to God's plan. An amazing plan where Jonah had the opportunity to witness the repentance and redemption of the most wicked people on the planet. Wow, eh? But Jonah would rather flee to the ends of the earth, hide from the presence of God, end up at the bottom of the ocean, than concern himself with the purposes of God and bringing God's merciful salvation to those who deserved it the least. Jonah wanted to see justice carried out the way he wanted it carried out. He did not want to see God spare his enemies because he was obedient to God. Jonah did not like what God was up to. He did not have the same view of people as God did. And tragically, Jonah didn't want to adopt God's view of his enemies. And the truth is, God's view of humanity has never changed. He has always had a heart for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. To God, they are all valuable. All of us are of value to him. And the worst person that you can think of, they are worth enough to God that he would go to the cross and die for them. God died for the wicked Assyrians, the barbaric Germans of World War II, the headhunters of Papua New Guinea, the ruthless communists, Muslim extremists of today, and each one of our wicked hearts. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish 
but have everlasting life. Whoever would believe in him. You see, God sent his son Jesus on a mission similar to the mission that he sent Jonah on. A mission that took him into the heart of a murderous and evil people so that he could preach repentance and life. Jonah refused. Jesus did not thank God. But here's the clincher. Jesus sent us on that same mission. The problem is, many would rather flee to the ends of the earth and end up at the bottom of the ocean than concern themselves with being obedient to God. And like Jonah, many don't like what being obedient to God would mean for themselves. They don't like what it would mean possibly for their enemies. They don't want their enemies to be recipients of God's mercy and abounding love, the very mercy and love that they freely enjoy. So the book of Jonah was meant to wake us up to the fact that God's abounding love is available to everyone, not just you or I. The book is meant to help us reprogram our brains to think how God thinks. The book is meant to help us see people from God's point of view and not from our own, to open our eyes to the abounding love of God so that God's Spirit can work that heart of love into our hearts. And we will see to what incredible lengths God will go to demonstrate his abounding love to Jonah and to us to make his love a reality in our hearts and in our lives. So I'm going to warn you ahead of time as we go through this very short book, the lessons and applications might hurt a little bit. You will feel the jab of the Holy Spirit. It's going to get personal. You might go home feeling convicted or like you were sucker punched in the gut, but that is good. Embrace it, because that is the point of God's word. That is why God authored such a book, to get us to look inside ourselves and to repent of where our thoughts do not line up with his thoughts. And then in faith, to ask him to give us a heart of mercy that aligns with his heart of abounding love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you loved us and you loved the world enough that you sent your son to die for us. We say that, we memorize it, and still it boggles our minds that you loved the worst person we could think of just as much as you loved us. And you sent Jesus to die for everyone so that anyone who would repent and turn to you in faith, would have forgiveness, life, eternal, eternity with you, and they would receive all the blessings of being in Christ Jesus. Thank you for that. I thank you that you looked at this sinner and that you loved me enough to send Jesus for me. God, help us to have your heart of love for the nations, for the world, for our enemies that you have. Give us eyes to see in the way that you see. Give us hearts of mercy and compassion and grace for those that are around us. And help us always to point them to the, one, the only one that can save, the only one that can bring life out of death, and that's Jesus. So God, go before us this week. May your word lead us, may it guide us in our thoughts and our actions. We pray this. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.
All right, why don't you stand for the benediction? And I encourage you to stick around and talk with one another and get to know one another. There's coffee out in the back and uh, greet one another before you leave. Now receive this benediction. May you go forth this week grateful that God is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Thank you, are dismissed. We'll see you next week.